0: Nehemiah chapter 13 if you have your Bibles with you this morning a physical Bible on your device whatever you might have if you don't have a Bible there should be one under a chair somewhere around you if you don't own a Bible um, you can you can take that one with you but if you want one that doesn't look like it was stolen from a church there there we have some at the info desk we'd love to put in your hands on your way out this morning so just stop and let us know all right Um, hey we made it. This is week 13, the final week of our Nehemiah series. We've 13 consecutive weeks in one book of the Bible. Um, 25% of the year in one book of the Bible. That's one way to look at it. It's, we've, we've been here for a while, okay? Siri's talking to me. Siri needs the Lord. Okay. All right. I don't know how that happened. But um, anyways, so stop. Here you go. Okay. All right. Um, If you're new, this is not normally how things go. Okay? Um, So anyways, where we are. uh, If if Nehemiah, if you think of Nehemiah as like a movie, okay, it, it would be a good one. And it, if it was going to be like a, the kind of movie that we like, it should have ended last week. All right. Because last week, Nehemiah chapter 12 is like everything ends with like there's celebration and there's singing and there's Thanksgiving and it's like, ah, this is awesome. Like a big, big worship service. Um, so if like we love movies with happy endings, right? That's the reason like it, we're, we're going to the holiday season. That's the reason that Hallmark is going to show you 73 of the same movie. I mean, think they're different. They have different character names, different small towns, but it's all the same plot line where, like, the successful person from the big city comes back to the small town and falls in love with the baker or the flower shop person or the coffee shop person, and everything works out happily ever after. And you eat it up because we love stories with happy endings, okay? Um, Nehemiah is not that story. Right, Nehemiah does not end with this sort of clean, sterile. Like, man, that's great. It's like, like, chapter twelve ended that way, but there's still another chapter here at the end. We've got to, we've got to deal with. Right, so Nehemiah doesn't doesn't leave us, or as you'll see, I don't think it will leave us with this sort of warm, fuzzy feeling when we like get to the end of it. Okay, aren't you glad you came to church today? All right, um, but. Here's why I think this is good news, is because the book of Nehemiah is not just like some ethereal story out there that's supposed to make us feel good, like a Hallmark movie. Nehemiah is a real story about real people that existed at a real point in time, that existed in a real place in time, that had real sin and real struggles. In other words, it's a story about people like you and me. Right? It's a story about people, like real people that like we are, with Live in a real place, a real point in time, with real sins and real struggles, okay? And so what I want to do this morning is we're just kind of work through chapter 13. Uh, and um, again, it's not going to be the warm, fuzzy, happy ending that we all want. But, but what I want to come around to at the end is I'm going to try to show you why, why that's actually good news for us. All right? So, Nehemiah 13. Let's get after it. Starting in verse 1. The text says, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. So that's like the first five books of the Bible. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. It's talking about past events. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of Foreign descent. Okay, so this is not entirely new. If you've been here through the series, um, several weeks ago, right, They heard the law read, and they separated themselves from sort of the foreign nations, the foreign peoples. And, and this was not. This was not by any means like a separation. Like we're better than you. It's not any form of like racism. It's it's not that. Uh, it's actually an indictment on the people of God, because as history had shown, any time that they like mixed and mingled too closely with the foreign nations, what happened is they, got, they were led astray. Right? Rather than remaining sort of separate from, and, and as the people of God, as they mixed and mingled with these people from foreign nations, they began to follow these foreign gods and worship these foreign idols. And so God had told them explicitly, like, hey, like there's to be some separation here. Okay, So no mixing and mingling or intermarrying with foreign nations. Everything's good, but let's, let's keep going. Verse 4. It says now before this right so so this is like a flashback Nehemiah is looking back here and what we're going to see is there's some shady business going on okay before this Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering the frankincense the vessels and the ties of grain wine and oil which were given by commandment to the Levites the singers and the gatekeepers and the contributions for the priest. So, Tobiah. Raise your hand if you remember that name from the past. Anybody? A few of you? Okay. It's all right. Listen, we've all slept since then. I get it. All right. Tobiah was one of, if you rewind back in the story of Nehemiah, back in chapter 2, and chapter 4, I think he's again in chapter 6, Tobiah was an outspoken enemy of the people of, of Judah here. All right, just oppressed them, tried to stop the work, sort of verbal assaults and accusations against the people. And yet here what we see is that some time has passed and now Tobiah is, um, like he's kind of with the people. And not only with the people, he's setting up shop like in the house of God. And not only that, the text also says that, that he was related to the people, which means that Tobiah, somewhere along the way, like his clan, the Ammonites, the people they're supposed to be separated from, married into the people of God. Right, so you've got this guy here, they're supposed to be these people they're supposed to be separate from. All of a sudden, now that kind of the one of the the top dudes of this people who was actively opposed to the work of rebuilding is now setting up shop, having a sleepover in kind of the courts of the temple. All right. That's what we see kind of going into the, the, the next verse, right? It says, actually, let me back up. So not only they intermarry, they, they put Tobiah in this place of sort of prominence, and, and what we find is that um, all this happens while Nehemiah is kind of absent, right? It's like when, when uh, the teacher's away, the children will play, right? I've spent all week substitute teaching, um, I don't have time to go into that story, okay? But here's what I have learned, is that when the teacher's away, the children play, okay? Verse six. While this was taking place, this is Nehemiah talking, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd years of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So at some point in this rebuilding process, Nehemiah goes back to the king of Persia where he was, if you remember in the very beginning, we saw that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So at some point in this process, Nehemiah goes back to, uh, to serve as a cupbearer. Okay? We don't know how long he was gone, inclined to believe it was a while because he had to ask leave again. Okay? So Nehemiah is gone and when he comes back, he like walks in and he's just like, what has happened here? If you parents with young children, you know this. You leave the room, it looks nice, and then you come back, like you walk into the kitchen to get something to drink, and you come back and you're like, good night. What happened? And that's kind of what Nehemiah does here, right? He, he, he comes back, and he is absolutely crushed by what he finds. All right, verse 8. It says, And I was very angry, and I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, and then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back, the, brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. And so Nehemiah sort of erupts in like righteous anger. I would say this is a good anger. Uh, and, and he begins to throw out all of Tobiah's stuff where he had been in set up and, and kind of purges this evil from, from the house of God. Right, if you're familiar with your Bible at all, this is a little bit of foreshadowing to what we see happens with Jesus. Right, get to the new pages of the New Testament. He shows up at the temple one day in Jerusalem and, and realizes that it's being overrun by money changers and people are trying to turn a profit, and he was like, none of this, and he just like flips over the tables and, you know, cracks a whip and runs people out of there like Indiana Jones. Okay. And so we kind of see like some some foreshadowing uh, of, of that here. But but what Nehemiah learns next is that there's much more going on than just the people of God sort of cozying up with the enemy. All right. Look at verse ten. He says, "I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field." Okay. Context important. Back in chapter ten, the people here in the the people of, of Judah. Uh, they made a covenant, kind of a recommitment with God. They said, we're going to do all these things that we have failed to do. And one of those things they said that they were going to do was to give to the ongoing work and ministry of the temple. All right, if you were going to back to chapter 10, you'd find them say things like, hey, we obligate ourselves to this. This is something that we have to do. We have to tithe and give of our first fruits and all that so that the, the ministry of the temple continues. Okay, in fact, chapter 10 ends... With with them saying, like, we will not neglect the house of God. Right? But but here we see like they've just punted on that entirely. Okay, they've they've neglected the house of God. And kind of we see sort of the the implications of that is because they've neglected it, the Levites who were sustained by their contributions, right? The Levites were those who kind of led the people in worship, they ministered to the people. Uh, they, They were sustained by the people giving. To the work of the temple? Well, because the people didn't give to the work of the temple, the Levites have to leave, go work in their own fields, which means the worship of God had certainly waned, if not entirely ceased, when Nehemiah shows back up. Okay? So as a good leader that Nehemiah is, he addresses the issue. Verse 11. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? It's like he uses the same language they used back in chapter 10. Right. They said, we will not neglect the house of our, our God. And then here Nehemiah says, hey, why, why have you neglected the house of God? And then he gathered them together, set them in their stations. Verse 12, then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the wine and the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So, so Nehemiah reestablishes their, their contributions, sets, kind of sets people back in place, people that are reliable, that are trustworthy, um, reestablishes their contributions to the ongoing ministry in the temple. And then in verse 14, we begin to see what I think can only be described as like some exasperation in Nehemiah's voice. Kind of got like this quick little, like, just one sentence prayer. Right? He says, Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Right? You kind of sense that Nehemiah is just like, Ugh. right? But there's still more. Right? Verse 15. It says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain, and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, and grapes, and figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought fish in, and all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And so, once again, if we were to rewind back in chapter 10, we'd see another one of the sort of covenant recommitments they, they make is, hey, we're going to remember the Sabbath. right? The kind of way that we said it a few weeks ago is they were recommitting to trust God and take him at his word. They looked out. There's a bunch of work that needs to be done in the city. There's a bunch of work that needs to be done, uh, whether it's on the wall or their homes. And they said, you know what? God told us that we need to take a break from our work. This is our opportunity to trust him, take him at his word. We're going to keep the Sabbath. And then here Nehemiah shows up, and, and what he sees is, Uh, That that rather than resting as the law commanded them, they're buying and they're selling and they're trading and they're just doing all sorts of business on the Sabbath. So verse 17, Nehemiah confronts the people again. He says, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you were doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. In other words, Nehemiah says, hey, what are we doing here? Right. The whole reason that we were shipped off into exile, the, the first point, it was because of our ongoing sin and rebellion and disobedience. Right? The whole reason that we're here trying to restore this broken city is because, like, Right, our father's long obedience in the same direction. We've seen how this plays out. So, why are we still here doing the same thing? Right, like, why are we doing this all over again? Right, and so, once again, Nehemiah does some, some course correction. Verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. So Nehemiah is reestablishing the Sabbath as this holy day set apart. He says, And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. I love this. He says, But I said to them, I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. It's kind of awesome. right? Uh, lost my hair. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Right? Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. right? I, I kind of hinted at, I just love that Nehemiah is like, like, I'm just inclined to think, Nehemiah was either like physically imposing or maybe like had some crazy in him. I'm, I trend towards the latter and I'll show you here in, why in, here in just a minute. But, because um, like he see, like he's reestablishing the Sabbath and he sees these people that are kind of like flirting with disobedience still. Like, okay, well, we'll just kind of stand right outside the city on the Sabbath and just kind of wait. And Nehemiah's like, you do that again, I'll lay hands on you. All right, now this is why I think he was either physically imposing or crazy is because they hear that and they're like, you know what, I think we'll just, I think we'll just leave. We'll just go ahead and go, all right? I can, listen, I can't do that. I mean, what a pastoral tactic, right? Like, you do that again, I will lay hands on you. Like, I can't get away with that because, one, I would get fired. Two, ain't nobody intimidated by this, all right? 170 pounds of, like, gangling arms and legs. Just, I got a wingspan. That's about all I got going for me, okay? Like, I could just get one shot and then run away. That's all I got, okay? So, quick recap. Here's where we are. In Nehemiah's absence, the people are basically letting the enemy have a sleepover in the courts of the temple. They're they're neglecting their contributions to the house of God. They're profaning the Sabbath. They're breaking all these covenant commitments that they made just a couple chapters ago. So surely that's all that's going wrong, right? Nope. Nope verse 23 in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab the people they're supposed to be separated from and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people right another I I don't know what to do at this point right Another covenant promise from chapter 10 broken by God's people. And then I, I think it's fair to say in verse 25 that Nehemiah has reached his breaking point. Here's what verse 25 says if you don't have a Bible in front of you. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Now listen, I don't know what pastoral burnout looks like. But just know if you ever see this kind of behavior from me, I'm probably there, okay? I'm at least on the brink. Verse 25 goes on, he says, And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying... You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon of uh, king of Israel sin on account of such women? So again, they're looking back. Guys, this is what happens whenever you do this. Look at what happened to Solomon, right? Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, had it going for him, decided, you know what? This one wife that I have is not enough. I need 699 more and 300 concubines on top of that. And it which is just blows my mind, first of all. But it led him away, right? Nehemiah saying, like, you know what happens. Why are we doing this again? Okay? It goes on. Let's jump down to verse 27. It says, Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, Was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite? Just for note, that's another one of the outspoken enemies of God's people. He's married into the family now. Okay, he says, "Therefore, I I chased him from me." I think we know if Nehemiah is chasing you, like you should probably run. You don't have to be the fastest; you just can't be the slowest. Verse twenty-nine. Then we we kind of hear Nehemiah just the exasperation again. Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood. And the Levite. So at this point, every covenant promise made in chapter 10 has been just explicitly broken. Right? They, they have not separated themselves from foreign nations. They have failed to contribute to the ongoing ministry of the temple. Uh, they, they'd opened up the, the temple and its courts to their enemies. They'd forgotten the Sabbath. they're intermarrying with the people that they' were explicitly told to have no business getting hitched to. Right? I mean everything. Is unraveled, right? And then here is how the book of Nehemiah ends, verse thirty. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and establish the duties of the priests and the Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times, and for the first fruits. And then this is just like the most pitiful thing to me. Nehemiah says, "Remember me, oh my God, for good." All right. The book ends with. Nehemiah, getting back to work to rebuild this people, to try and rebuild this people all over again. And then the last words in the book of Nehemiah are basically him saying, God, just remember me. I'm trying. I'm doing the best I know how to do. And that's it. That's the end of the book. Credits roll up the screen. It's like one of those, again, if this is a movie, like this is the one you walk out of and you're like, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to feel about that. You ever had those movies where like you walk out and like you're just in a funk, you're like, I don't know what to do with the way I feel right now. That's kind of how Nehemiah ends, right? We, We like the clean, like again, it would have been awesome if it ended in chapter 12, but it doesn't. It ends here with like, really, here's kind of the arc of the story of Nehemiah. It begins with a broken city, a broken wall, and things get better and things get better and then all of a sudden the book ends and the people are still broken right still broken and so the question for us is, is well, what do we what do we do with that right there's there's no warm fuzzies there's no happy ending there's no like resolution or closure it's just that's it right and so here's what i want to do this morning is is just spend kind of the last few minutes of our time together, thinking through um, what the story of Nehemiah teaches us about us, more importantly, what it teaches us about God, and then how do we live in light of that? All right, so here's the, kind, of the, kind, of, kind of the big overarching thing that we see from the story of Nehemiah, what, what it teaches us about us, and that's this, that the people of God are a people in process. Right, the people of God are a people in process. Right, I said this earlier but I think we would do well to remember that the story of Nehemiah is not some ethereal made-up story like the ones you see in movies. Okay, that's why movies can have the happy endings because they're not real. They're not real life. Nehemiah is a real story, real place, a real point in time, real events, real circumstances, real sin, real brokenness, real struggles right? And it's a real story, and real stories are rarely just kind of up and to the right. You know what I mean by that? Like, like the, this idea that from the moment I become a Christian, that everything else from that point just gets better and better over time. Now, I don't know what your story is, if you're here and you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, Right? I just don't know many honest testimonies that sound something like this. Like, I became a Christian and everything has only been better since then. No sin, no struggles, no fears, no doubts, no issues. Like, I just don't know a lot of honest testimonies that sound like that. Right? now, I'm not saying that, that eventually things, like, yes, the Christian life is, it is, hopefully, Better over time, but man, there's a lot of peaks, and there's a lot of valleys, and there's a lot of, like, that's just the Christian life. And so if your testimony this morning is, is, hey, from the moment I became a Christian, everything's been awesome, never had any issues, God can do that, but I'm more inclined to say that either you've been a Christian for like 12 minutes or less, or you're just lying. Right, because the, the story of the people of God is not always up and to the right. So, the, the story of the people of God, we see here in Nehemiah, always has been, and, and on this side of eternity always will be a story of people that are in process. Okay? Here's, here's what I mean. If you are in this room, you're a Christian, if there's been a point in, in your life where you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, here, here's what that means. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. Right? There is, there's all of, all of God's wrath toward all of your sin, past, present, future, has been fully absorbed by the death, resurrection of Jesus. Right? You have been fully and completely saved from the penalty of sin if you trust in Jesus. Like there's nothing left for you to do. Right? You have been saved from the penalty of sin. And then the promise is that one day, you will be saved from the presence of sin. In other words, if you've trusted in Jesus, you've been saved from the penalty of sin, there is a day coming, this is what eternal life, eternity, will be spent apart from the presence of sin. There is no sin in the presence of God in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. That's your promise. You have been saved from the the, uh, penalty of sin, You, you will be saved from the presence of sin, But then there's a lot of life that's lived right here in the middle. Right? Kind of in between the the already and the not yet. And it's in this space that we are being saved from the power of sin. You, You have been saved from the penalty. You will be saved from sin's presence. And it's in this space that all of us exist in right now that we are being saved from sin's power in our lives. It's this process called sanctification. If you read that in your Bible or you've heard that word before, it's the process of just becoming more like Jesus. And it is not an overnight flip of the switch thing. You are being saved from the power of sin. And so one of the things that I I think, though, is when we talk about this, like... um, Many of us hear this idea that we should be conformed more and more into the image of Christ over time, And we hear that, and, and I think maybe our first thought is just how unlike Jesus we still are. Or like maybe, maybe you're just kind of haunted by the frequency, the consistency of your sin. Like, you feel disgusted with yourself because, like, you're like, you think you should be further along than you are. Right? Like, you can't believe that you still snap at your kids. You can't believe that you still uh, are cold towards your spouse. Right? You can't believe that you um, are still, right, have too much to drink. Right? You can't believe that you're still struggling with that same addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs or pornography, like you can't believe that you still cuss out the guy who, who cuts you off in traffic and then feel bad about it because he's got one of those little Jesus fish on the back of his car, right? Like most of us, when we hear this idea that we're supposed to be conformed in the image of Jesus Christ, become more like Jesus over time, the first thing we think of is how unlike Jesus we are. Right? At least that's what I do. Right? And, and the, the tricky part is, like we feel like we should be further along than we are. The tricky part is like we're that's, we're partly right. We should be further along than we are. Right? If, if, if you're a Christian, you probably should be further along than you than you are right now. But but what we have to hold in tension, like what you need to know is that Jesus did not give His life as a sacrifice for some future cleaned up, uh, sterile, polished version of you. When Jesus gave his life for you on the cross, right, he knew what he was buying. He knew what he was purchasing. Right? He, Jesus doesn't keep his receipts because he's like hoping to kind of, you know, return you in case you don't shape up the way that he's hoping. Right? That's, not how, that's not how this works. Jesus knew what he was getting into when he paid for your sin on the cross, right? He knew all of your sin, past, present, future. And, and listen, he doesn't have buyer's remorse. He doesn't. Like we have buyer. You ever bought things and you're just like, like, usually it's a car, you drive it off a lot and you're like, oh, why did I? Why did I do that? Like, it, I feel like something you need to hear, like Jesus doesn't feel that way about you. He knew what he was getting into. He knew it would be a long process. He did not expect the moment that you put your trust in him for all of your problems to be worked out. He he did not believe. Now, positionally, you are secure in Jesus Christ. But but know that Jesus does not expect you to live perfectly from the moment you put your trust in him. He knows it's a process because the people of God always have been. And on this side of eternity always will be a people in process. right? So, so let me, before I get accused of, of tipping the scales too far, let me say this. Hear me clearly. Sin is never safe. That's not what I'm saying. Like We should never, like the Bible constantly warns the people of God to flee from sin and temptation, to, to put it to death, to kill it. So I'm not saying we should get comfortable with the presence of sin in our lives. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that you should get comfortable with the reality that you are in process. And as long as you walk in obedience with the Spirit, the Spirit's going to continue to reveal things that need to be corrected. Right? That Sins that need to be confessed and need to be repented of. Like that's what happens as we walk in step With the Spirit. And what I'm saying is, you should get comfortable that you're in process and then lean into that process by living a life of ongoing repentance. Turning from your sin, turning back to Jesus Christ. Because repentance is not just something like a one time thing you do when you become a Christian. Repentance is the ongoing ethic of what it means to live as a Christian. As the Spirit kind of does his sort of MRI and is like, hey, that is an issue in your life. That is an area that is not in line with what it means to be conformed into the image of Christ. We we repent. And listen, that process continues from the moment you put your faith in Jesus until the moment you take your last breath and step in the glory. None of us arrive on this side of eternity. None of us. I don't think any of that was in my notes. I'm, I'm out of... Out of control here. Let's see. Let me get back to where I was. Let me get back to where I was. So, if anything, you should feel some level of comfort by the reality that you feel the weight and conviction of sin. Again, not saying you get comfortable with sin. I'm just saying, like, if you feel the weight and conviction of sin, that's pretty good evidence that the Spirit's at work in your life either drawing you to Jesus Christ for the first time or drawing you back to Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Right? The more dangerous place to be is to, is to give yourself over to sin and rebellion and disobedience and feel zero conviction for it. Right? That's, that's Romans 1 type stuff. That's where God says he gave them over to their passions. Like there, There's a point where you just live that way long enough, God's going to be like, all right, that's what you want. Have at it. And and you think you're getting away with it for a while. The reality is is there's a day of judgment coming. Whether you feel conviction for it or not, the day is coming. We will answer for those things. So so the book of Nehemiah shows us that the people of God always have been and on this side of eternity always will be a people in process. We are being saved, being, being sanctified. Okay? That's what the book of Nehemiah teaches us about us. But it also teaches us something about God. Okay? This won't be as long of a point. I promise I'll try to stick to my notes. So Nehemiah may have ended on a discouraging note. Right? The story of the people of God there uh, as recorded in the book of Nehemiah. It ends on a discouraging note. But the good news is that the book of Nehemiah is not the end of the story. Right? All throughout the Old Testament, there were hints and whispers of this coming Messiah, right? One who would come and save the people of God from their sin fully and finally and forever. And then then Nehemiah ends the way it does. And, And chronologically, Nehemiah is towards the end, if not at the end, of the Old Testament. It's not that way in your Bible. But if we were to put the events of of the Old Testament in order, Nehemiah would be very close, if not at the end of the Old Testament. And so this is how the story of Nehemiah ends, right? With everything broken, the people are jacked up and screwed up. It's like it's discouraging. And then what follows pretty soon after this is four to five hundred years of silence from God. No prophetic words. No visions. No dreams. Like nothing. And so you have to imagine the people of God at that time wondered, did we go too far? God's been silent generation after generation after generation, four or five hundred years. Maybe they'd pushed God's buttons a little too much. Maybe, they'd, maybe God had reached his, his breaking point. And so he just goes silent. Like, like when I was growing up, that's kind of, like I knew when I'd push Dad's buttons too far, when he like got quiet. Like I have an awesome dad. I hope I grow up to be half the man my dad was. Never like lashed out at us in any ways. I know that's not everybody's story here, but I knew when I was pushing him too far because he would like get quiet, and then he'd have like this little muscle in his jaw that would like, like twitch, and that's when I was like, he's about to lay hands on me. And I used to have to wonder if the people of God at this point in the story are like, gosh, maybe we've. Maybe we've gone too far. Maybe God's response to our rebellion this time is that he's just abandoned us. Again, four or five hundred years of silence. But, but the Nehemiah story is not the end of the story because four or five hundred years passes, silence from God, and then God breaks into that silence with an announcement to a young, unsuspecting couple in a little town about 60 miles north of Jerusalem where the events of Nehemiah occur. And God announces to this young unsuspecting couple, hey, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Jesus. And he's going to save his people from their sins. God's, God's response to the people... God's response to their long history of disobedience and sin and rebellion, his his response to that is to send a Savior who who would save them, right, from our long history of sin and disobedience and rebellion. And He would save us from our ongoing struggle with sin, He would save us from our future sin and failures. And so when we zoom out, like, away from the book of Nehemiah and kind of situate it and place it in its context in God's full plan of redemption, what becomes clear really quickly, and this is kind of what the book teaches about God, is that even when God's people are faithless, God remains faithful. Even when the people of God are faithless, God remains faithful. That's good news this morning. So that when you blow it, and you will, know that God doesn't take a step back because he's repulsed by you. When you're tempted to believe that you've gone too far, it's the gospel, it's the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ that reminds you that God has already moved towards you. And that you, you have not you cannot possibly out-sin the grace of God that's been made available to you in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the, so the invitation to you this morning is simple. It's, it's to move toward Him in response. Because He has moved towards us, because He has been faithful and we are faithless, uh, the invitation this morning is just to move toward Him in response. Right? Not to earn anything from him, but because he's already moved towards you. So maybe that's repenting of some ongoing, indwelling, persistent sin in your life. Right? Something you've confessed and repented of more times than you can possibly count. Right? You're in process. Right? and, and there's, So long as you're on this side of eternity, you're going to be doing a lot of repenting. So just get used to it. Right? Maybe your response this morning is to repent of that. Maybe... Maybe you have confessed and repented of that, and so what you need to do, like you've done that vertically to God, maybe you need to do that horizontally to others to invite other people into that area of your life so that they can help you live a life of ongoing repentance. And then maybe you're here this morning and you've never turned toward Jesus for the first time. Right? You, like you believe in God, you believe in Jesus as like people and figures, but you've never actively said, no, I, I am a sinful person. I need a savior. And what I'm saying is that the God of the Bible has already moved towards you in the sending of his son, Jesus. So if you hear this morning, you've never trusted in, in Jesus, I would say today is a day to, to place your trust in him as savior and Lord. So we're going to pray here in just a minute. The band's going to come. Uh, if you need to come and pray, we'd love to pray with you up front. If you need to come and you just got questions like, what does it mean for me to trust in Jesus? We'd love to have those conversations with you as well. All right. But listen, we are a people in process, and we have a God who is faithful even when we are faithless. All right. Let that motivate us to respond to an invitation this morning. All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you uh, just grateful for your goodness. Grateful for, Lord, what we see uh, just taught in your word uh, that you are a God who is patient with us but as we are in this process of of being sanctified, of of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I, I pray that that just that word would fall on somebody this morning. Maybe maybe they're here and they're just discouraged because like, they feel like they just, they're just too far gone. Maybe they believe the lie that because their life has not been perfect since following Jesus, that maybe there's something wrong or broken with them. I pray that they would feel that maybe in a, a new, fresh way your grace and mercy on them this morning. And I pray that your kindness towards them would would move them to repentance and it would be your continual kindness that would lead them to embrace a life of ongoing repentance that when, when you by your spirit reveal areas and, and places in our life that are not aligned with your will for us that we would be a people who are quick to confess quick to repent and then to continue striving to walk and step with you and then Father as always just would ask it if there's any in this room I, I don't know their hearts I don't have the ability to, to know the status of their souls that's not for me to know but, but you know and so I just ask Father if there's some here this morning that have never trusted in you for the first time never confessed their sin and need for a Savior never repented of their sin and, and placed their trust in Jesus Christ as the only sufficient payment for their sin I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them that you would prompt them to respond, to have a conversation with, with myself or with a family member or a friend or someone around them to, or to take that, that step. God has already moved toward them in the sending of Jesus. I pray that they would then, in response, step into a relationship with him through faith. So Father, we ask you to work now, uh, in this moment, but even beyond this moment we leave this place later today. We just pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and our lives. Um, Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.